From KCRW, I'm Kim Masters, and this is The Business. Gary Oldman is mesmerizing every minute that he's on screen as the very disheveled leader of a lesser MI5 spy unit in the Apple TV Plus series, Slow Horses. And he still pops up in other projects, including a one-day gig as President Harry Truman in Chris Nolan's Oppenheimer. I'd spent almost seven years with Chris over three Batmans, and then he went quiet (laughs) for a long time. And then he called me, and I thought, I think I was maybe just flattered that he'd remembered me. Oldman talks to Eric Deggans about why playing Jackson Lamb in Slow Horses appealed to him, and how he made a major career change after years of being typecast as what he calls a rent-a-villain. He also explains that idiots are the only things standing in the way of him returning to writing and directing. But first we banter. Stick around. It's the business from KCRW. I am joined by my partner in banter, Matt Bellany. Hello, Matt. Hi there. So, Disney. We already had a set of dissident shareholders. Nelson Peltz, a longtime corporate raider, dissident shareholder. He buys interests in companies, buys a chunk of stock, and then he tells these companies what they're doing wrong. I mean, companies like Procter & Gamble or Snapple. But some while ago, he jumped in complaining that Disney needed his help. And Disney has been challenged, like all the legacy media companies. And so there was an argument to be made, but whether it was an argument that should be made by Nelson Peltz is a good question. He doesn't have any particular experience in entertainment. And it turns out he was backed by Ike Perlmutter, who had been the head of Marvel, sold that company to Disney for $4 billion years ago and eventually was pushed out by Bob Iger. And he has got a bunch of stock in Disney when he made that deal to sell Marvel to the company years ago. So he is backing this Nelson Peltz play with that stock. And they went at Disney before. Iger did a big, as you know, big layoff, lots of budget cuts. And at that point, they sort of said, okay, we're going to back off for a while. But only for a while, they have returned. And this time they have Jay Rasulo, who had run the theme parks before becoming CFO, was seen as a potential contender to replace Bob Iger. But as we know, for many years, being a contender to replace Bob Iger was a hazardous duty and you were likely to get pushed out of the company. And he did pass over, Bob Iger did pass over this Jay Rasulo, who was a favorite of Ike Perlmutter. So now he's involved with this attack and he has many years of Disney experience and in the opinion of some, adds credit credibility to this uh, attempt to get seats for Peltz and now Jay Rasulo on the Disney board. And that's clearly the strategy there. They say, okay, yeah, Nelson Peltz and Ike Perlmutter, these guys are West Palm Beach billionaires who are just sitting around trying to figure out what to do in their 80s. And they decided (laughs) to screw around with Disney and try to boost their stock in this proxy fight. But now they're saying, well, we have a legitimate person here. The problem is, is that this is all smelling like a spite store, like something that these disgruntled guys, Perlmutter and Rizzullo, have decided to do to Disney to exact revenge. And that is not an argument that I think will win over Disney shareholders. I mean, you got to say exactly what your ideas are and how listening to you and putting your seats on the board is going to help Disney enact change. They have not done that, at least not yet. All they've been saying is cut costs, cut costs. Well, Iger's already doing that. 
And any CEO with half a brain would look at the Disney balance sheet and say, oh, we overspent on streaming. We got to cut back. Oh, this is a really bad time for television advertising and the entire model we've premised the company on, ESPN floating everybody's boat, that's not working anymore. We've got to cut back. And he's already doing that. So what are these guys bringing to the table? Yeah, Ike Perlmutter is a very colorful character. I mean, he is a very much a self-made man. He did become a billionaire having, you know, come to this country panelist from Israel. He is notoriously cheap to the point of, uh, you know, picking paper clips out of a waste paper basket. And he and Kevin Feige, who was the very golden head of Marvel, first of the films, then of film and TV, they clashed. And in particular, you know, over Black Panther, which Ike Perlmutter didn't want to do. And there have been allegations that Perlmutter has driven certain people out of the company in the past. He's uh, very difficult. He is known to carry a gun. So yes, he has a revenge motive because Iger did push him gradually completely out of the company. Jay Rasulo, you know, you could say it's a revenge play, but the question is, are shareholders frustrated enough that they may say, what the heck, you know, let's vote for these guys because maybe they will make things better. I can see your skepticism. And meanwhile, Bob Iger is clearly taking this seriously and he has brought in allies. Yeah, he brought in a, another big shareholder, Value Act Capital Management, and they are essentially saying Nelson Peltz is a clown. He's doing this for his own self-interest. We believe in Bob Iger. You know, his track record as CEO since 2005 speaks for itself. And this company does need a reinvention, and Iger is the guy to do it. So why would you screw around with that in the middle of it? Now, I'm not saying Iger doesn't have his issues. He certainly does. And there's real questions as to whether the strategy that got Disney to this point is is the strategy that is going to get Disney out of the current predicament. But when you're putting Iger and his team up against the Nelson Peltz and Ike Perlmutter, Jay Rizzullo trio, I don't know what argument they're making that's going to resonate. Well, they're going to apparently tell us in the weeks ahead, you know, Disney will have its uh, annual meeting where people will vote on this. And before that, these guys will present presumably a plan. And in that respect, I think it's clear that Jay Rasulo is a plus because he knows a lot about this company. He was chief financial officer. So what they say is probably going to be more than you might have expected if it was just Perlmutter and Peltz. True. But what Peltz has said, at least in his public statements, is I just want to go back to 2015 when Jay Rasulo was at this company and Disney was a profit machine. Well, Okay, great. I think everyone at Disney would like to go back to 2015. I think everyone in the television business would like to go back to 2015. I think you could say Hollywood generally, yes. Yeah, everybody. I mean, this doesn't address the issue. The issue is, is that it's not 2015. And this company is not able to ride the cable bundle in a way that it once was. So is the guy that Nelson Peltz is looking at as the good old days? What are his plans to get back to that? Or does he not have any? Yeah, let me just spend a second on Jay Rasulo. Jay Rasulo was Ike Perlmutter's choice to succeed Bob Iger. And when he didn't choose Jay Rasulo, when it became clear that Jay Rasulo was going to leave, Ike Perlmutter said to Bob Iger, you broke my heart, which is funny <laughs> because most people think that would be a very tiny little heart to break. Oh, That's how they see how dare you. Perlmutter. <laughs> 
<laughs> you broke my heart. So James Sulu doesn't get What is this, the godfather? The <laughs> so what I will say is James Sulu is a Nike Perlmutter guy because as someone described him to me in a story I just did as a blunt instrument, as a budget cutter, in a way you could say, is he not Bob Chapek Redux coming out of the theme parks, you know, with a reputation as, you know, not the friendly, warm face of Disney that Disney has projected the entire time I have covered this company, which is a while, but this more undiplomatic person who likes to cut, cut, cut. So yes, this will all be for the shareholders to digest and we'll see where it goes. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. That's Matt Bellany, a founding partner of Puck News. Gary Oldman is one of those actors with a resume as long as your arm. He's worked with Oliver Stone, Tony Scott, Christopher Nolan, and David Fincher. And he took home an Academy Award for his role as Winston Churchill in Joe Wright's 2017 film, Darkest Hour. Oldman plays a very different character in the Apple TV Plus spy series, Slow Horses. Jackson Lamb is the grumpy and very disheveled head of Slough House, where MI5 sends agents who are out of favor for some kind of screw-up. The group is dismissively referred to as the Slow Horses. All right, make this quick. I've got underlings to bully. I'm busy. No one in Slough House is busy. Come on, get on with it. A team from MI5 has gone rogue. And Standish has been taken. What's the plan? I need a team of good agents. But I've just had the slow horses. The traitors we're looking for. Ex-military. It's an honor to be selected for field work. Shut up. Got it. Really? NPR TV critic Eric Deggan spoke with Oldman about Slow Horses and his storied acting career. I'm a fan of Slow Horses, and I've enjoyed every season a little bit more than the previous one. But when I first heard about it, I said to myself, why is Gary Oldman doing a TV show? And then I met Jackson Lamb. This character just feels like one of the more delicious characters you played uh, in yeah. your long career. I mean, you know, this broken down guy, he's slovenly, but he's also the savviest and smartest character on the show. Is that what drew you to Slow Horses in the first place? I'm a big fan of long form and have enjoyed it very much over the years. And nothing like it had ever really come my way. But I, I would occasionally watch it with great envy and I would think, you know, wouldn't it be nice to develop a character over an extended period of time rather than just one shot that you get with two hours or whatever it is? I've touched on it a little with Potter mm. and a little with James Gordon in as much that you're revisiting a character. But I've always loved the idea of having a character development over a long period of time. And then this came in, and it was a genre that I really like, but with Mick Heron, who wrote the books, you know, he's turned this sort of world upside down. Brilliantly written, fabulous character, and um, uh, 60-something years old, you know. (laughs) So you kind of fit fit the role, is what you're saying. (laughs) Yes, I can bring a lot to it. From a life well lived. Let's put it that way. There you go. I I love that way of putting it. What's interesting to me is like, you know, you've got these movies that sort of set up the spy genre, like the James Bond movies or even Tinker Taylor. 
And then you've got these movies that satirize or kind of subvert the spy genre. And you guys are subverting the spy genre, but in a way that seems so unexpected. I mean, to have this guy manipulating these rejects and mediocrities (laughs) into being an effective force is quite innovative. Yeah, I mean, they're all pretty good at what they do, but they've made one mistake. You know, that is sort of why they're there. I think that Lamb personally looks at them and thinks, this line of work isn't really good for anyone. Him being a sort of an example of it, you know, just look at me and look where I am. And look where... We spoke to someone from MI6, a retired spy, and he at the time had not, obviously we'd not shot, but he had read some of the material. And he said it was in part very accurate in as much that there's a lot of alcoholism. Relationships suffer enormously because you are living in the secret world. You don't, you know, if your spouse says, where have you been? You can't readily give them the information, you know. So it puts a great deal of stress on the individual and relationships and you know, in the first season, you see Louisa take her laundry to the laundrette that is washing her clothes. You, you'd never see Money Penny. <laughs> that. You know, he, he gives us people that are spies and a genre that we're familiar with, but he makes them very familiar and they're people that are relatable. You know, it's not a world of sort of tuxedos and and casinos and fast cars. And I think that's the wonderful twist. And also, there's a lot of humor in it. So it is a rather fresh take on a world that we know. One of the things I've said about Apple TV Plus, where the, you know we're seeing this show, is that it's got a lot of really great shows, but sometimes they don't seem to get as much attention as maybe on like Netflix or you know a, a, you know yeah. one of the major streamers. So I wonder is one of the challenges just spreading word about the show and getting people to check it out and letting them know what you're doing. Yes, I think it's more visible in Europe and the UK. I mean, it is quintessentially sort of British. I think one British reviewer pointed out the fact that there's a character in it who's Duffy, who's the head of the dogs, you know, dunking a Kit Kat chunky into a cup of tea. I don't know if that translates really anywhere else. You know, the Brits would see that and get that immediately. But I think with now season three, It's got its fans that are just happy that we're back and it's getting the word out to an American audience. Um, I think Apple may be coming around and thinking, you know, I think we have a winner here. I hope you're right, most definitely. And so I wanted to ask you a question, and uh, this is just based on being somebody who's watched your career from the outside. So forgive me if I'm asking a question that might seem a little silly to you, but it, it seemed to me like... Particularly when you first came on the scene, one of the things I enjoyed about watching you is that you could give your all to these characters who were really over the top. I mean, like one of my favorite scenes in cinema is when Norman kind of loses it in the middle of the professional when his henchman asks him, 
you know, how many people were sitting after this guy? And you say, everyone, you know, it's just, I still quote that scene to people. But it seems like there was a point when you started playing characters that were more interior, that had more interiority, that, that weren't quite as over the top. Yeah. Um, you know, your Jim Gordons and your, your George Smiley's. And I'm wondering if that was a conscious choice or was that something that just kind of naturally happened? No, it was a conscious choice. I think what had happened was I got typecast and they see you do something like, for instance, if you take La La Land, suddenly everybody turns around and says, I didn't know he could dance. I didn't know he could sing. Well, most actors back in the day had all of that. You know what I mean? Bob Hope was a comedian, an actor, a dancer. You know, these people, that was their bag of tricks. So they see you do one thing, and I'd done other things before that. I've done theatre, I've been in musicals, you know, but they see you do this thing, and you do it, you know, as Harrison Ford used to call me, Scary Gary. Um, (laughs) And, uh, you know, and, and I got to the point where, I mean, the professional... Is almost like um, it's heightened. It's like a cartoon for grown-ups. You know what I mean? It's a, and the thing that you're quoting the line is I only did that as an outtake to make Luke laugh. <laughs> but everyone, I just did that as a sort of uh, a joke to crack him up, and he liked it and he kept it in the film. There were other takes that were less over the top, but. Yeah, I got to a point where I thought, I'm a little tired of this. In fact, Nolan approached me about playing a different character. In fact, it was my manager who um, gave him the idea and said, well, what about Commissioner Gordon? And we met and we chatted and and he, he was intrigued by the idea. You know, to his credit, Chris went, oh, yeah, it's kind of interesting. To answer your question, it was a conscious move to... Uh, get away from the I was like rent a villain you know what I mean it was like we need a villain who can we get Gary Oldman you know yeah well and that's interesting because I was wanting to ask you about Oppenheimer because here you are playing this legendary president I've seen interviews with other actors who worked on the film who said that you know the the level of that cast was so impressive that no matter what part they had they felt like they really had to bring it and that the expectations were high and the level of performance was high. Now, of course, you've been in a lot of films with a lot of great cast, but did you feel that at all when you were working on that film? And when what's it like to sort of be well, in the middle of a Nolan production like that? Outside of the material, I didn't know where they were in the shoot. I only met Killiam for that one day. And so Chris called and said, would you come in for a day's work on Oppenheimer? And um, I'd spent almost seven years with Chris over three Batmans. <laughs> and then he went quiet <laughs> for a long time. And then he called me and I thought, I think I was maybe just flat that he'd remembered me. <laughs> and, oh, I uh, think he would have remembered you. <laughs> yeah, would you come in and do this? And I said, yeah, it'd be great. So I can't say I didn't have an expectation, but it was just that Oval Office and and lovely Hillary Murphy 
So I just came in and did my little bit, and I'm a weave in the fabric of it all, you know. And then you watch it, you know, and you go, wow, all that wonderful work everybody's doing and the size of it is enormous. But I wasn't privy to any of that. I was just doing a little scene in a room. Well, maybe that's for the best, you know. <laughs> yeah, probably, probably. But it was a lot of fun. And I know Killian from, you know, the Batman films, who our paths crossed. And he's one of the sweetest guys you could ever hope to meet. So it was nice to sort of reconnect with him and do a day. You know, it's nice to come in like that. And you're not carrying the thing. You don't feel the same kind of pressure. But you do have to bring your game. Coming up after the break, Gary Oldman shares what stands in the way of his returning to writing and directing. Turns out, it's idiots. You're listening to The Business from KCRW. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. This is The Business, and I'm Kim Masters. In the Apple TV Plus series, Slow Horses, veteran actor Gary Oldman appears in his first starring role on television. He plays Jackson Lamb, the cranky and disheveled leader of Slough House, where MI5 sends agents who are out of favor and consigned to the more boring aspects of spy work. Oldman is nothing if not versatile. He's played historical figures, maniacal villains, a noble police commissioner, an outlaw wizard. You name it, he's likely done it better than most. One memorable Oldman performance was his turn as ill-fated Sex Pistols bassist Sid Vicious. Eric Deggins spoke to Oldman about his big-screen breakout performance in the 1986 film Sid and Nancy. So I saw in an interview with you a while ago that when you were approached for your first uh, big film role, this Sid and Nancy, that, you know, you weren't sure about this film thing and you kind of turned up your nose at it a little bit and you valued theater more. And I wonder if you think it's kind of ironic now that we're where we are that, you know, you've been in <laughs> Harry Potter movies, you've been in Batman movies, you're doing a TV show now. Are you kind of surprised that uh, as an actor you ended up here given, you know, what you initially thought about film way back in the day? Oh, I'm, I'm surprised about the whole thing, <laughs> to be honest with you. Well, first of all, I was always sort of, I've tried to be, was well, certainly in the theatre, more often than not, you're dealing with very good material. You're dealing with better writing. And I remember years ago, they wanted me to be in um, Mutiny on the Bounty. And uh, I ended up not doing it. I ended up doing a play instead because um, the writing was better in the play. The cinema to me was up there and over there. You know, Michael Caine and Al Pacino and Sean Connery and Robert De Niro and Meryl Streep and the, you know those people were you know Spencer Tracy, Cary Grant. Those were the people in movies. You know what I mean? Yeah. I never planned any of it. You know, 
And so it wasn't that I sort of turned my nose up at it necessarily. It was just that I was never into the punk movement and was kind of, I guess, a little, you know, who cares about Sid Vicious and Nancy. And so I was probably a little bit of a snob. And now you're now you're one of those people. <laughs> yeah, and now I'm one of those people. But I um but not not in not the in the art of cinema. It wasn't like I remember Laurence Olivier many many years ago was on a set somewhere and he was saying, you know, you're anemic little medium and he looked back at it and thought, "Oh my god, the arrogance of this, you know, jumped up theater actor on the set of, you know, a Hollywood movie." It wasn't that. It was just that I just wasn't really into the punk movement. But to be honest with you, my process is to turn down something first and wait for it to then come back. So you figure if you were meant to play it, it will come back to you. Yeah, it, it washes up again. Yeah, there have been instances where I've absolutely said, no, I'm not interested. Or I'm scared. But that's good when you're scared. Often you do the best work when you're terrified. Yeah, it should be challenging, right? Yeah. I've also seen you say in a few recent interviews that you might slow down acting, even though you're willing to play Jackson Lamb as long as they'll let you. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you you directed uh, Neil Bynemouth, wrote and directed that film uh, in, in the 90s. Would you ever see yourself shifting more to doing that kind of work, writing more, directing more, rather than... Uh, oh, I have done. I just haven't been able to get anything on. There's scripts. <laughs> There's one in particular that I've had for 11 years I've been trying to make. I recently pitched a TV series with my wife, um, to no avail. What do you yeah. think is the biggest challenge? Idiots. <laughs> now you sound like Jackson Lamb. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us anything more about some of them? I am very, very interested in hearing about the shows that you're pitching. Well, I had a script a long time ago, which was kind of, I guess you could call him a sex addict, but it was really it was really actually a film about people, dysfunctional people being in inappropriate relationships. But that was a film I tried to get made for a while, and no one, that was shortly after Neil by a Mouth, and no one wanted that. I spent three and a half, four years working with Darren Strauss to get a movie made about the original Siamese twins, Chang and Ang. And somehow there was a seismic shift in the industry because it was a big, epic thing. Um, and that didn't go anywhere. And then I've had another project for really 10, 11 years that I've been trying to make. and um, But, you know, sometimes you see work and there's always a backstory. You know what I mean? You'll see, mm -hmm. you'll, you'll see something and then you read, oh, my God, so-and-so was trying to make that for 20 years. I mean, I love playing Jackson Lamb and I love the people. We are in a very, very rare position. There's no infighting. The producers are terrific. The riding team is wonderful. The crew is coming back again. You know, we, you know, we have number four in the can, and it's the same group of people that come back. We get good directors. So I feel very privileged to be working under those circumstances. The source material is terrific. 
So I do feel that I'm happy to do this for as long as they want us. And in between, I just did a little cameo for Paolo Sorrentino in his next film. I'm the, actually the only English-speaking person in it. It's, it's set in Naples and, and in Capri. I pop up for a day in Oppenheimer. So I don't see it as a sort of retirement, but just a slowing down. And also, you know, acting or anything really, whether you're a musician and you're passionate about it, it takes all of your energy and focus and concentration. And I'm interested in a lot of other things, but have neglected them because I have this thing I do. And I think that as I older I get and I slow down in that respect, I can do slow horses and then get six or seven months off. I can either choose to do an Oppenheimer or do my photography or, you know what I mean? And to be at home with my wife and the dogs and all, you know what I mean? Just absolutely, absolutely. Do something, do something other than just being on a set and in a trailer. I've been doing it for 40 odd years. I really appreciate the time that you spend with us. Uh, yeah. Gary Oldman, thank you for joining us on The Business. Yeah, thank you. And that's The Business. Joshua Farnham produced and edited today's program with help this week from Hope Brush and Nick Lamponi, who mixed the show. You can stream The Business as well as other great KCRW shows on kcrw.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kim Masters. We'll see you next week on The Business.